This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. This week on Radio EcoShock, we'll see how hard it is and how possible it is to get out of the matrix. Resilience expert Dr. Nate Hagens talks about his college course, Reality 101. So we are kind of walking fossil fuels, and I think there's no plan for what to do after our um, fossil fuels kind of deplete and go away. And they're not, you know, we're not going to run out of oil and gas and coal, but the cost of extracting it is going to get so high, and it's currently subsidized by financial shenanigans, that we're not going to be able to afford a lot of what is projected as a physical resource in the ground. Sure, there's a lot of hydrocarbon molecules there, but can we afford them? And then, you know, the other thing, Alex, it's not as if we have a choice to live this way for 500 or 1,000 more years, and that's what we're sacrificing. This stuff's going away in the next generation or two, no matter what we do. Then we visit with two top American scientists whose recent study was published by the government-funded National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We don't have a lot of time, and our study is interesting in that it says up to 80% reduction of carbon dioxide by 2030 without an increase in electric costs. A detailed study of sun and wind says, yes, we can replace fossil and nuclear power with renewable energy, and it won't cost any more than what we're doing right now. Thank you for joining us this week as we explore where we really are and what we could do about it. I don't know about you, but I'm often stuck on Bob Dylan's words. Something is happening here, but you don't know what it is. Wouldn't it be great if we could take a course to understand reality as it really is? The course exists. Dr. Nathan J. Hagens teaches Reality 101, a survey of the human predicament, to students at the University of Minnesota. Nate Hagens is a familiar name to anyone who tracks energy and resilience. Nate was a successful Wall Street trader. He left all that in 2003 to probe deeper. Nate is on the board of directors of the Post Carbon Institute and a director of the Bottleneck Foundation, and he teaches. He's working on a book that he doesn't want to talk about yet. Hagens lives on a farm in Wisconsin with a collection of animals. Nate, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, we have guests that see everything in terms of energy, and others focus just on the environment. I've also had eco-psychologists. You're one of the few who are trying to wrap these all up together. Why is that? Well, I think unless you know the whole picture or uh, a large part of the whole picture, you end up coming to erroneous strategies and conclusions. And so some of the things you mentioned are actually the three core pillars that I taught my students and, and that I think are important to know. One is that we are causing the sixth great extinction. It's not just climate change and ocean acidification. I mean, those impacts are even on the horizon. It's the squeezing out of nature, which we can get into more details. The, the second is that energy underpins everything in our civilization and our hopes and expectations are based on fossil slaves, which are no longer going to be available in the number and strength that they have over the last century. 
and that means uh, an end to the growth trajectory. And then the third thing is when we talk about the human problem of uh, climate change and energy depletion and pollution and poverty and all these things, we really don't have those problems. We really have a human problem. So we have to look at um, the fact that we carry with us baggage from our evolutionary past and and what the human animal is really about. So um, I teach my students probably half the semester is on human behavior. Well, we'll get to those big picture demands that you make of your students, but I was struck by a course requirement to spend at least an hour a week outside, away from phones, computers, connectivity. Why is nature part of an academic study? Well, these are mostly freshmen and some sophomores in my class, and they're honor students, and they read a whole lot. Um, Just in my class, they read about 10 hours a week of readings, and it seems to me that kids nowadays are brought up with kind of low attention span gadgets, and when I was that age or younger, I, I every day after school, I spent two or three hours in the foothills in southern Oregon with my dog looking at salamanders and trees and blackberries and deer and such. And I think kids nowadays, a lot of them haven't had that experience. So when we're talking about the bottlenecks of the 21st century and the human clash with everything that's coming, I think we have to engage both the head and the heart. So I assigned them uh, one hour of of being in nature with no technology and no talking, just kind of sitting and thinking about the things we learn in class, sitting in a wild setting, and I, I think that's important. And you offer them another tool that helps them deal with the uncomfortable aspects of what we're about to talk about, and I thought, well, maybe that'll help our listeners too. What is that? Well, uh, the first day of class, I, I handed out a, uh, a nice little journal, a diary to all the students, and I told them not to share that with me. It was for their own kind of emotional reactions to the things that we learned in class. They should have another notebook for the class notes and studying for quizzes and things, but this was just for their own thoughts when they learn about how important fossil fuels have been to our population increase in our consumption levels when they learn about what's happening to the oceans and, uh, you know, 40% of terrestrial vertebrates are gone since they were born type of things. Those are very depressing and emotive facts, and I I wanted to just give them somewhat of an outlet to express themselves and maybe come back later in their lives and look at what they were thinking when they were 19. Well, right. Nate Hagens, you are well known as an energy commentator. What does the current glut of oil and these low prices tell us about peak oil theory and energy limits? Well, uh, you used an important term there, Alex. You said energy prices. I think most people are unaware that there's a difference between price and cost. And the price today, oil was down 5% in the public market, closed under $30 a barrel. That's what consumers pay, but that's not the cost of oil. The cost of oil has gone up over 15% a year annualized the last 15 years or so. The cost to energy companies in extracting that. Now, we're having a little bit of a bout of deflation globally because of China kind of hitting the brakes on some things, and that means that the cost of oil is maybe dropping a little bit. But if you look at what price the oil companies need to break even globally, it's probably over $50 all in. And 
on the really expensive marginal barrel, it's upwards of 80 or $90. So when we talk about $30 is what consumers are paying, yet the oil companies are all losing money at that level, what that means is there's going to be a lot less investment in infrastructure and new drilling and things like that to replace uh, the depleting older fields. So I think that uh, oil is probably peaking very soon. In response to your question about peak oil, though, I don't like that term because it, it just focuses on when there's going to be a peak and a decline, and it doesn't tell the larger story that at really expensive oil, say oil was $400 a barrel, well, the oil companies are going to go out there and find more oil at $400 a barrel. But the benefits to society are going to be substantially less uh, the higher oil prices go. So I, I prefer to call it peak benefits as opposed to peak oil, and I would argue that peak benefits is about a decade ago. In other words, the benefits that society gets from super cheap oil have, have already peaked and are declining, and you see it all over with um, you know lower wages and half of Americans have less than three months of savings, um, wealth inequality. You see it in Europe with the refugee crisis, and all those things are tethered to higher-costing uh, fossil fuels. You know, the course that you're offering has some really challenging texts on, and videos on systems theory and complexity, and it strikes me only a few people are really going to get this. And is there some sort of social machinery or, or way to make this knowledge useful to make it work? I mean, do you believe in trickle-down consciousness? Trickle-down consciousness, what is that? Well, if you let's say your students get it. Just a few of your students really get it. Get a picture of how this world is working. Will they be able to make any difference, or are, are there other great big pieces of machinery that just keep us going in the same direction anyway? Well, that's numerous questions, Alex. I will tell you this first off, that you saw my syllabus. It is a lot of stuff. It's, it's integrating anthropology evolutionary psychology, energy, economics, debt, environment, all into one cohesive picture. There wasn't a, a section that my kids didn't understand. They grasped it all. Now, what was still an open question, is a 19-year-old or is anyone emotionally uh, capable of, of synthesizing all this and coming up with a life plan? I think the bigger question isn't can you understand the complexity, it's how do you construct a lifestyle around knowing what's happening and being at college in order to get a job, to be a consumer, and, and all that. But I, I personally think um, it's kind of depressing to synthesize all this, but someone's got to know it. Because if no one engages with the larger challenge of what are humans going to do this century, what do we aspire to, you know, then, then we're going to kind of be the lemmings that just go off the cliff in various ways. So I, I do think it's not entirely threatening. Some of it is, uh, is exciting, but I, I, I do want more people to think in systems, and I wish that it could happen in sixth grade and eighth grade with some of this ecology and things. I mean, they, my kids were just totally shocked at how vital energy is to our lives. The fact that one barrel of oil has 11 years of human labor in it, and we pay now $30 for it. It's just crazy that they're 
19 years old, and they never had any idea about that. So those sort of things, I, I think, um, we would be better to instill much earlier. And you've got a course section on geologic time and paleoclimatology. Dr. Peter Ward, who's been a several-time guest on Radio EcoShock, is featured twice in your syllabus. Why Peter Ward? Well, he's been on your show. Oh, yeah, twice. Maybe three times. He's, uh, he's one of my heroes. I mean, I, I just um, had a little email exchange with him a couple months ago. I've read most of his books. He's a systems thinker. He's what I like to label a proto-sapiens or someone that can look beyond all the distractions and focus on kind of the core issues. And I just generally like his demeanor and what he studied. The reason that I assign his stuff to my students is he's one of the few people that has studied and looked at the commonality of prior mass and mini extinctions, and CO2 was a common link in almost all of them, if not all of them. Uh, there's now evidence that the, the meteor that hit 65 million years ago, there was already a CO2 pulse that had started a couple hundred thousand years before that. So just to kind of look at uh, uh, the context of, of deep time, when we talk about billions of years or hundreds of millions of years, it's like talking about billions or trillions of dollars. Our, our brains just can't grasp that. So one of the uh, the tools I like to use with young people is I bring either a, um, a stromatolite, which is a two billion year old um, cyanobacteria, or I, I, I like to have like a hundred million year old piece of amber uh, with a, an insect in it that was frozen in amber. And when you're looking at that insect in amber, when that insect was alive, dinosaurs were still a conditional probability in the future. They didn't even exist yet. And when you're looking at that and holding it in your hand, it allows you to experience in your mind deep time actually happened, and I'm holding part of it now. And when you think about deep time backwards, you can also possibly think about deep time forward um, and all the lives of different creatures, including humans, have not yet um, been on the planet. And it uh, it's kind of a profound thing to think about. Well, we are a short blip on that time scale, but we have evolved even in our own time. I watched a Reality 101 course video about evolutionary psychology. It's a YouTube interview with John Tooby and Lita Cosmides on Stone Age Minds. Do you find yourself agreeing that the human mind doesn't arrive as a blank slate but may have structures designed to cope with the problems of a hunter-gatherer society right inside us? Well, of course I agree with that because I assigned my students that. It's, uh, I don't know about Canada, uh, but I've given lectures in Europe and it's like obvious to students there. But in America, it, especially with the um, high standard deviation of, of high school education, it's a, it was a real um, eye-opener to students to think that we, all of us alive today, are descended from the best of the best, an unbroken series of ancestors who had access to resources, were successful in mating, were successful in raising offspring, and all those um, adaptations that led to their success were kind of hardwired in our ancestors, and we have those things. So we know with certainty that we spent a very, very, very long time in small bands of between 50 and 150 tribal members on the plains of Africa, and we are descended from them. You can imagine what are the things 
that led to their success. And those are the things today that um, shout loudest in our brain. Things like uh, jealousy and in-group preference and fear, you know, all, all the things that led to their success are still with us today. And we just are reacting in a, in a different world. When we have a craving at night for Haagen-Dazs ice cream or nachos with cheese sauce, it's our brain uh, reacting to these supernormal stimuli of today that weren't available in our ancestral past, but the neurotransmitters and the brain signals are telling us, this is good for you, you need more of this, because our ancestors um, had adaptive advantages. So once you start looking at human behavior with the lens of we are carrying around a Stone Age mind, and it's not all facts and what culture dictates that drives us, that we have these genetic leashes um, it, it really kind of is a, is a powerful lens into looking at what's possible and what's unlikely in our, in our behaviors. Big Picture Radio right now with Alex Smith. Get it all, ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith talking with Nate Hagens about Reality 101. Nate, you've also written an article, The Psychological Roots of Resource Overconsumption. I couldn't find that anywhere online. What is it about? Well, it's kind of what I was just saying. It's that we are forming years as a species. We're in a, an environment of, of scarcity and privation. And now we're in an era of plenty because of uh, fossil largesse giving us um, all kinds of uh, gadgets and ability to fly to the moon or fly to Australia and ship things to us. And so if we look at our evolved drivers, there is no natural negative feedback living in a tribal setting in Africa to more stuff. We just kind of had what we could get and carried around with us. Now there is no instinctive limit to our craving for more and more stuff. And I, I, you know, I used to manage money for billionaires on Wall Street, and I could see that it was just the feelings that they were after every day, trying to get from 300 million to 400 million in their bank account. It didn't really count for anything. They weren't happier. They didn't, you know, need that extra money. But it was they were getting the same neurotransmitters that our ancestors got on the Pleistocene when they killed a big animal and brought it back to the tribe. And I, I think there's also the addiction aspect to it. And we get higher and higher hedonic ratchets, higher and higher levels of baseline uh, stimulation from modern things. You know, I, I actually am worried about young people today that spend so much time on Facebook and Vines and Twitter and Instagram and every time we do that, we get a little bit more neurally hijacked uh, because this is like cocaine to our brain relative to the experiences our brain was formed for. And what happens is, you know, planting a tomato or doing a nature hike uh, on Vancouver Island doesn't shout as loudly to people as this um, new technology and I, I fear that as today's youth gets older, they're not going to have the attention span to deal with some of the very physical problems coming down the road. 
Well, speaking of physical problems, I want to skip over to another topic here. Do you think there's a hidden crisis in agriculture? Well, the hidden crisis in agriculture is that, you know, a third of our arable land has gone away um, in the last few decades uh, via pollution and washing into the ocean. And we don't seem too concerned about that because we just put new fertilizer on it the, the next year, which comes from fossil fuels. You know, 150 years ago, our bodies were entirely formed from sunlight and soil. And now 50% of the protein and 80% of the nitrogen in in our bodies comes pretty much directly from natural gas via the Haber Bosch fertilizer process. So we are kind of walking fossil fuels. And I think there's no plan for what to do after our um, fossil fuels kind of deplete and go away. And they're not, you know, we're not going to run out of oil and gas and coal, but the cost of extracting it is going to get so high and is currently subsidized by, you know, financial shenanigans that we're not going to be able to afford a lot of what is projected as a physical resource in the ground. Sure, there's a lot of hydrocarbon molecules there, but can we afford them And then, you know, the other thing, Alex, I don't know if this is on one of your later questions, but it's not as if we have a choice to live this way for 500 or 1,000 more years, and that's what we're sacrificing. This stuff's going away in the next generation or two, no matter what we do. And so we're just so focused on the present. Quarterly earnings is, you know, that's what everyone's talking about, but we don't even have a five-year plan, let alone a 20-year plan or a 50-year plan or a 1,000-year plan. And that, again, is because of our evolutionary psychology. Our ancestors that focused on the distant future would have been outcompeted by people or organisms that, that consumed any food they found. Um, so to defer reward is something that's kind of against our nature. I disagree in one sense, though, because we did adapt to living in northern climates by figuring out how to store some food. So there is that idea of storing, as the Egyptians did, they stored grain for several years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That just uh, modulates the expected uh, standard deviation of feast or famine. So, yeah, we can focus on the next season out, but were the Egyptians focused on, on 50 years out? I mean, we never really had to before. There was always, you know, some new horizon or, or a, a new continent to go to, but now we're living on an ecologically full planet, so the rules might be a little bit different. Well, if things don't go well, and there are plenty who are pessimists now, in your course, Reality 101, there is a segment on mass extinction. Where do you stand on the idea of human extinction, whether it's in this century, as suggested by Dr. Guy McPherson, or in the next coming centuries? Well, you brought up Guy McPherson. I actually showed my students on the climate change part of the class a video, one of his videos, and I showed it back-to-back with a video from uh, a former Greenpeace guy named Patrick Moore, who denies that climate change is a concern and actually thinks that burning fossil fuels has staved us off from the death of, of plant life. And both of these guys are articulate and intelligent and trained and believable, but they come across with wildly different conclusions. And I think 
that exercise was intended to show them that there's a vast disparity of opinions on climate change, but it really hammered home some of what I tried to teach them about cognitive biases and the fact that we are definitely not rational creatures. And so I, you know, as far as extinction goes, I view the world as a probability distribution and I think some bad things are are definitely possible. Actually, some bad things are are pretty likely. I think extinction is extremely unlikely, and uh, I I will definitely not say zero, but we're awfully adaptive creatures. Um, The problem I have with, with Mr. McPherson is to say, oh, we're going extinct, there's nothing we can do, there's all these climate feedbacks, to have that position is functionally equivalent to being a denier of these problems because neither camp will accomplish anything. It hasn't, F word, happened yet. So Guy and his acolytes are being useless, in my opinion. And if they really think that these things threaten the world, they should be out there doing some inconvenient things trying to stop it. So I'm, I, I think the nihilistic, we're going to go extinct, is, is not a productive thing, even if it were true. I think uh, we're going to go through various bottlenecks this century, and uh, you know, I would bet that we're going to have more people alive as opposed to less in the next 20 or 30 years. Not saying that's a good thing. I just think that's probably likely. But this all comes down to what do we aspire to? And I think that's a question that's just not being asked enough. I mean, we're all concerned about climate change, so let's build solar panels. And, you know, we're concerned about... Uh, financial depletion, so our financial currency crises. Let's buy some gold. I mean, we just don't have a plan on what humans, now that we know where we came from, who we are, what we need, what we're doing to the planet, um, what's the plan? What what do we really want to do with our time here? And uh, I, I'm hoping that young people can can address that question and start thinking about it because I think the older people are, are kind of uh, cognitively checked out because it's, it seems too daunting. You know, we're not going to have time to really get into what the climate ocean bottleneck is, but you said it really affected your students. Could you at least give us a snapshot of what you're talking about there? Well, we had a week on climate change and a week on ocean acidification, and we showed some videos and stories about what the ocean continuing to take up the excess CO2 might imply for the future. And I don't think we know enough about any of this stuff to know with certainty what's going to happen. But, you know, I'm in Minnesota, and we're not near the ocean here. And I think a lot of people just think the ocean is where we get shrimp and and mahi-mahi from, and they don't really think about the complexity and the creatures there. So to think of how much the ocean has already been decimated, you know, 90% plus of pelagic fish is gone, 98% of whale biomass gone. And to put an emotional face on those things, my writing partner has experience with cetaceans and not only in researching them, but also having them as friends. And so hearing his personal stories about relationships with dolphins, etc., hit the kids pretty hard. Um, because we don't know if the food webs will exist. I'm not talking about this century, but in the next thousand years, if if the ocean acidifies greatly, that has pretty ominous implications for some of those other mammals in the ocean. 
Yes, I just interviewed a scientist who did a study on plankton and found it's possible that the source of our oxygen could be greatly depleted if the ocean warms too much. But that's a whole other topic. I do want to get to this point here. On Resilience.org, I found another text required in the course. It's called A Prosperous Way Down. It's by Howard and Elizabeth Odom. Is there a prosperous way down, and why should we accept going down at all? I don't think we're ever going to vote to keep carbon in the ground. Uh, I think our fossil slaves are going to be leaving us before we leave them. And that's going to mean one thing almost for sure. There's going to be a lot more poverty, and it's going to be deeper poverty. I think that Americans, and I think Canadians are pretty similar, we consume around 230,000 calories a day, and our bodies only need 3,500 or 3,000. So all that excess energy that we consume from coal, oil, and natural gas is around 70 times what our bodies need. So as far as a prosperous way down, there's a heck of a lot of buffer. We're living at one of the richest times, with the exception of the natural world, um, the richest times in the history of our species. So there's a lot of potential navigable ways down. But, you know, the agenda of the gene, as it were, the things that shout loudly to us when we feel like we've been unfairly treated and other people are getting more than we are or other nations... Uh, you know, war and violence and, and those sort of things are, are likely companions on that. But I, I think it all comes down to what you were saying before about some trickle-down consciousness of who we are, what we want, and what makes us happy. And uh, I flip back and forth between naive optimism and, and despair on, on how this all plays out. But I think uh, to have young people engaged with reality of energy, environment, and behavior, you know, there, there could be some emergent properties that are actually pretty exciting. And we can't visualize it now. It's so natural for us to, to kind of hear some bad news in the internet or in our emails and extrapolate that forward. But I think there's quite a few possible positive game moves that, that are left. Okay, so what does the individual do about this? Ah, well... I think you know that I'm writing a book kind of on that. I think you have to kind of take your awareness of likely futures, which we're going to have basically less stuff or at most the same amount as today. And I think we have to look at choosing our own paths during that time where we pick our friends and we pick our pastimes and we choose what we value, and I'm going to hopefully have a longer list of that to share with you the next time we talk, but it has to do with kind of dismissing the consensus trance of what other people value and what they think is the goal and and march to your own drummer a little bit. Um, I don't think we're going to stop the heat engine, as it were, uh, of burning fossil fuels, but I think uh, we can meet it halfway, and that comes from individuals and then groups of individuals and then towns and, and nations, etc. When do you think your new book will be ready? Uh, excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's hard to uh, kind of tell the whole story in a, in a way that can be understood and grasped, but also in an inspiring and, and hopeful way, because I am hopeful that we, we're going to make some good decisions that we can't yet see. 
I would hope by the uh, beginning of next semester, which would be September, it'll all be uh, ready, and I will definitely send you a copy. Great. Well, thank you for talking with us today, and by all means, let's talk about this book when it comes out later this year. Thanks, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. It's not easy trying to become aware in a troubled world. Nate Hagens takes his students at the University of Minnesota through a wide but shallow collection of tools in his course called Reality 101, a survey of the human predicament. Nate has a master's degree in finance from the University of Chicago and a Ph.D. in natural resources from the University of Vermont. He left Wall Street money to become an alternative social critic. His personal website is called The Monkey Trap, but he doesn't update that much. I'll put some link to Nate Hagen's articles and a few key YouTubes from the course in my show blog at ecoshock.info. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Wouldn't it be great if most of the electricity generated in America came from wind and solar instead of climate-wrecking fossil fuels? Of course it can't be done, except it can. Who says so? Hippies from California? Not quite. It's all in a new paper by a former senior scientist at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and a physicist math whiz from Ceres, the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Let's see if we can map the energy future with Dr. Alexander MacDonald, known as Sandy, the recently retired director of NOAA's Earth System Research Lab, and Dr. Christopher Clack from Ceres. And they're all in Boulder, Colorado. Sandy and Chris, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Okay, thank you, Alex. Hello, thank you. Let's start with you, Sandy. What the heck? How did NOAA come to post a study on how to power America with alternative energy? It really started six years ago when I was really looking at why people say wind and solar won't work. You know, they said, well, they're too intermittent uh, and they're too expensive. And I thought, gee, that isn't true. That's intermittent if you have a little area like the size of one state or something like that. But what is really evident to somebody who studied weather for a few decades is the scale of weather is big. So if you want to have a big enough area so that if it's not blowing in one place, it'll be blowing another, you can't go with something small like the state of Kansas. It must be much bigger. So we set out to study that and uh, in the process really looked at uh, all the aspects of how wind and solar energy could go into the electric system. Chris Clack, how did you get involved in figuring out this potential for solar and wind power? So I came into the project to look at how I could build a model to try and incorporate these different technologies using really high detailed weather data. And it was quite a difficult computational task to get the model to be able to bring in all these millions of bytes of data to do the number crunching to also include all the salient features of the electric grid as well. And so I came in as a mathematician to try and build that model to try and make it as accurate as we could. And as you said, Sandy, the big question with wind and sun has always been their intermittent nature. The sun goes down behind the clouds and the wind can stop blowing. Sandy, can we get past that really? 
We really can, and uh, Chris's model was uh, pretty marvelous. It basically showed that if you tell the model you have to minimize annual costs, but you can put wind and solar anywhere you want. In our case, we were studying the United States, so we were looking at the 48 contiguous states. And you can use other things like transmission or storage or whatever, but the model itself was built around take these components of the electric system and find the least expensive configuration of a national system. And so Chris developed the model, and we did probably a couple hundred runs of different kinds. And so we're talking in our paper about one that was really important, which was using wind and solar and natural gas whenever in fairly rare cases when you don't have enough wind and solar. And we looked at the size that you need. So we divided the U.S. into really small areas the way the AC power system drives us to, that is the alternating current, which really has to be used in fairly small areas. And what the uh, uh, paper uh, talks about is the simulator basically says you can get low-cost and low-carbon energy uh, by using the largest possible domain. So we thought it was a, a very important result from this uh, new simulator that uh, Chris had developed. And the other monumental challenge is the need for storage, or do we need storage at all? The uh, interesting thing is storage is one of the things we included in this optimization. So it's always going to look at things like offshore wind and storage and long-line transmission, long-line being like these big high-voltage DC transmission and it's going to decide which is the least cost. In the case of storage, at the estimated cost for 2030, which was the year that we uh, took as our target, it did not use the storage, and it also used very little offshore wind. So this is basically an economic study that says build the lowest-cost system in the simulator to tell us what the policy options are for the future. Chris, you might want to add to that. I, I agree. Uh, essentially, what happened was when we put everything into the model with the cost estimates that we had, storage just didn't play a major role. The transmission itself allowed us to use space and time as the storage medium. So as storms move through, the power can be distributed across the U.S. the majority of the time. And then the natural gas can then be as used as peaking plants or backup plants to fill in the gaps, which ended up being cheaper than having storage put in. But, you know, I've seen studies that say about half of the electricity produced in the United States today is lost in transmission. Chris, if the wind is blowing in the West and we need that electricity in New York City, how does it get there? So in the model, one of the major components with the national system that we, the simulator sort of developed, is that there's this HVDC overlay on top of the existing transmission. So it's high voltage direct current instead of the alternating current. And what that allows us to do is it actually has lower losses than the traditional AC, and it allows power to be shipped much further. And so with that, we can move power from, say, the desert southwest to New York with roughly 12% losses. But that's actually far less than you would have with AC, and the power would get there at the, at the frequency you need it for that particular market. And so 
what it allows us to do is be more efficient with the system rather than just shipping it along AC. If you do with AC, there's lots of technical difficulties that you have to do to try and move it longer distances, which uh, adds up to more and more losses. Has this DC transmission line been done anywhere in the world? Is it a real technology? My comment is it's a well-known technology. People have been using it for many, many years. There's a high-voltage DC line that goes from Oregon to Southern California, and the Chinese have just built two big, long, uh, very powerful lines uh, of HVDC. Uh, Alberta just uh, created a 300-mile line. So a key component of our study was to say, we were only going to look at technologies that exist today, that we know what their costs are, at least can get good estimates for the next 15 years by 2030, and nothing that was sort of like, well, we need a breakthrough or something. We weren't going to allow those because the key thing is, I think the problem of mitigating carbon dioxide really can't wait uh, as director of NOAA's Earth System Research Lab until a month ago, a lot of our studies were how urgent it is to do something about CO2, and this was kind of looking at the other end of it saying, well, can we use the weather data to tell us something that would really work with existing technology? So it was really a a kind of the uh, other half of the problem that was very exciting to work on. So how do we know where solar power will turn on, and how can you calculate what to expect during a year? Well, I'll mention uh, the weather data. We have what's called a weather assimilation model. So that's something that takes all the existing measurements at a given time, like within a given hour, like all the aircraft wind measurements and you know surface weather stations and satellites. It uses all that data to actually tell us what the detailed weather. We had 150,000 little uh, rectangles over the United States and southern Canada. Uh, We'd get a value of what the winds at 80 meters would be and so on. So this extraordinarily detailed weather data every hour for three years at 150,000 points, we used that at the same time we had the U.S. usage of electric load Uh, people actually turning on their toasters or whatever at 250 areas over the United States. So we matched them in time, and we told our system, minimize the total cost for the year, but you have to meet the demand for electricity over all these different locations in the United States. And that was sort of the problem we gave Chris, and uh, he used something called linear programming to uh, solve it. And Chris, when you mapped out the potential for alternative energy, does wind produce more power than solar? So when we did the cost optimization, the results show that with the the optimal solution, we actually get about 38% of the electricity from wind and 17% from solar. So it's kind of a two-to-one ratio. There is actually a higher potential over the whole U.S. for solar, but the The problem is that solar goes to bed at night, so the sun goes down and you can't produce anything. And so actually with wind and solar together, what happens is the solar actually peaks in the middle of the day. It starts dying away, but the wind actually starts picking up as the sun goes down and as as it transitions to the evening, the the wind will actually pick up. And so the two together actually complement each other very nicely. Um, But overall, because you have day and night with wind, it ends up um, having more uh, more electricity produced from wind than from solar. 
And so how many solar panels and wind turbines would we need to power at least most of the electricity needs of America? So the wind turbines, approximately 205,000 two-and-a-half megawatt wind turbines placed uh, across the U.S. And then with the solar panels, we've worked out it was roughly 360 gigawatts of solar. And so uh, I think that worked out to be roughly a million solar panels. So that's acres of solar panels and a lot of wind turbines. Sandy, what do you think about the inevitable battles over where to put these things? Well, uh, one of the things that we did is we didn't put high density. We sort of said you could put one of these every square kilometer, and we also used land use to determine all the places that they couldn't go. You couldn't put them in national parks, cities, uh, areas that were steep slopes, uh, all kinds of things. So we really kind of have a system where the optimizer will choose areas where they could really go, like out in the country. And if you drive around these wind farms, you'll see the farmers uh, with their cornfields or their wheat fields, and the turbine itself is out in the middle. It's kind of a cash flow for the farmer. It's not really uh, encumbering a lot of space. And in fact, I think Chris has some calculations that it was not, doesn't encumber a huge area. The combination of the wind and the solar that would be developed with a combined area smaller than Rhode Island would be uh, changed from its existing use. And did I hear you say, gentlemen, that we can't go for 100% solar and wind? We might still need some fossil fuel backup. Yeah, yes, the way the system works is we have uh, natural gas power plants as what we call a dispatchable. So that means that Almost all the time, the wind and solar somewhere in the United States are there, but not all the time. And again, this is a cost minimization, so uh, we're actually using whatever price the natural gas is. So essentially, if there's not enough, it will use natural gas. Now, why doesn't it use very much? It doesn't use very much because if it uses it in the optimizer, it has to pay the fuel cost, the actual natural gas that gets burned whereas it can always, in, in essence, other than the capital cost, get the wind and solar for free. So it's kind of a nice way to look at it that it will only use the fossil fuels. And another point about this is uh, you can do something with this optimizer, like say, well, there is no natural gas available, and you have to use only wind and solar. If you did that, you might find the price is much higher because uh, it has to essentially build out in this simulation enough wind and solar so that it always produces. And that's very similar to many economic goods. You get 80% reduction, up to 80% reduction of carbon dioxide with no increase in cost. But if you say, boy, it has to be 100%, then you're probably going to uh, something like double your costs of electricity. And we basically had the uh, hypothesis that um, wind and solar can be effective, but not if they increase electric costs a whole, uh, you know, a whole lot. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with Alexander Sandy McDonald, recently retired from NOAA, and Chris Clack from Ceres in Boulder, Colorado. They have mapped out how America could get most of its electric needs from solar and wind power. Well, Sandy, I know that you've been studying this. Weather patterns may change as the world warms. 
What about developments during climate change? Did you include that in your model? Uh, no, we didn't. And one of the neat things about the uh, news model that uh, was developed by Chris is if we want to put in different weather data or different cost data, it's a model. So it's really just a tool for policymakers to say, well, what if this happens? Uh, I will say this, that I did take the time a couple years ago to look at some of our global climate models for later in the century, 2030 and 2050. And what it looks like is as the century wears on uh, over the United States, you get a little more sun and a little less wind. Uh, but they kind of canceled each other in this very simple look that we had. But we have not done that in the model. So what happens, though, if we can't do this? Maybe the political climate is wrong or the economy goes bad. We don't get this smart grid built. Could you see a different study that explores what happens if a few million homes all power up individually with solar or maybe local communities mount their own wind electricity companies? I think, you know, there's many, many options, but uh, what I would say is uh, we don't have a lot of time, and our study is interesting in that it says up to 80% reduction of carbon dioxide by 2030 without an increase in electric costs. So that means that um, if we could get everybody to conserve or everybody to put panels on their roof, we may get further, but uh, I'd be worried that we'd get nowhere near what we need to really deal with the uh, climate change problem. Well, I guess just as your study showed, you know, that looking at one state isn't enough, we need to look at a great big area to make this work. Maybe it's the same with the power system. We really need a national power system. Uh, Again, another example that I like to bring up is the interstate highway system. Uh, We didn't replace the state, federal, and local roads when we put in the interstate, but we enabled a national market. And essentially uh, what this study, what this simulator came up with, it kind of created a national electric market for the same reason, that if you can move the electrons around much more effectively, you get lower costs and in this case, lower carbon dioxide, which are important. So it's a little bit like uh, President Eisenhower saying in the 1950s, this would be a very valuable economic boon to the country that will last for decades and decades, and we've certainly seen that with the interstate highways. And, you know, regarding this intermittent nature of the sun and wind power, in order to save the climate, we might have to change our lifestyles and or even our approach to industry Maybe we could use power just when it's available from clean sources so we don't turn on our appliances or maybe we don't go to work in the car plant if there isn't much electricity available today. What do you think about that? I think it's really an important thing to try to conserve. That is really important. However, I also believe that people are probably going to be using more and more electricity. One of the things that's happening is that the autos, the Nissan Leaf and the Tesla and so on are showing how effective electric autos can be in terms of less fuel cost and so on. And so even though we should do everything we can to conserve, uh, if the amount of electricity that people use goes up and up because of these other uses, 
what's our answer? Are we going to build more coal plants or whatever? So I think we have some very big questions, and we should do everything we can, like conservation, but we also need big solutions to what is really a very big problem. So, Chris, where do you think this paper could go and the model that you've made? Could it be used by government or business? Have you had some interest yet? I, I think the the model itself is uh, going to be very useful as a, as a tool to look at different options that are available. Um, like Sunday's been saying, we've, we've tested this hypothesis and we've looked at you know, what wind and solar can do if you look at the large scale. But it can be used in different ways to look at how you could see different policy implications. So, for example, if, if nuclear power was decided to stop running, uh, what would happen? What would you use to fill that gap? What's the cost-optimal solution to fill that gap? And so I think it's a, a very useful tool, and hopefully it will be used in the future to make more um, quantitative decisions on how to progress forward with a, a low-carbon economy. Since Chris mentioned nuclear power, I want to mention another aspect. People hadn't really thought about it, but there was almost a requirement because of the AC, the way AC power works, is people would place nuclear power plants not very far from heavily populated areas. And so that was another effect of AC power. So a policymaker could say, well, suppose that I could, we get a new generation of nuclear plants if you had this high-voltage DC interstate for electrons, you could actually place uh, nuclear power plants very far from the population areas and, and really increase your margin of safety. So the real emergency that I think we've featured in NOAA for uh, several decades is carbon dioxide going into the air has got huge implications and nuclear is a carbon-free power also. It must have been strange, Sandy, going to work every day and seeing the weather maps starting to shift over the years because of climate change. I guess uh, I'm, I'm one who believes weather is exciting and interesting and different every day from the time I was a little kid. And uh, I think that weather is just variable, but the effects of carbon dioxide, which I think are quite clear in the rise of temperature and the increase in acidity of the ocean, these are effects that we understand that I think uh, you can't look at the remainder of this century without saying, okay, we've got a big problem. What What is the kind of solution that would really work? Is there anything that either of you would like to add? I'll make a quick comment that I mentioned the idea that electric uh, usage will probably go up over the next uh, 15 or 20 years as we get more electric uh, cars, more uh, heat pumps, which can air condition and heat a house. So we're really to solve the whole energy problem, not just the electric energy part of it. The first thing you have to do is to decarbonize the electric sector. If you decarbonize the electric sector, then autos, who some people project will be dominantly electric sometime in the 2020s, and space heating and other uses also become carbon-free. So uh, we think this is an extraordinarily important first step for policymakers to consider this result, that there is a way to do a fairly rapid and affordable decarbonization of the electric sector. Chris? 
we've really found that wind and solar can do a, a lot of work in terms of decarbonizing the electric grid. Um, and we've actually found that it can be cheaper than business as usual, so cheaper than just continuing the way we are, which I think is contrary to what a lot of people may have believed. And the only way that you can do that is if you do it more in a more smart way about how you deploy and how you, you put these technologies out. And so I think it's quite a, an interesting result. And hopefully, once people look at it and see uh, the amount of work that we put into trying to make it uh, conservative, we might actually find that well, we can get more done than, than we actually found in the, the results. Our guests are Sandy Alexander-McDonald, who has been the director of NOAA's Earth System Research Lab, and Chris Clack, from the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder. We've been talking about a new article titled Future Cost-Competitive Electricity Systems and Their Impact on U.S. CO2 Emissions. It's published online in the journal Nature on January 25, 2016. You can find links to a NOAA article all about it, complete with cool maps, in my Radio EcoShock blog published Wednesdays at ecoshock.info. Thank you so much, both of you, for your help and joining us today on Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Radio EcoShock. Don't forget you can find all our past interviews with scientists, authors, and experts, and activists on our website at ecoshock.org. Those are free for download or listening anywhere in the world. This program is also available by podcast. You can find a detailed blog for every program with links to the original material, videos, and social media links at ecoshock.info. If you find this program useful, please tell your friends. I'm Alex Smith, saying thank you for listening and caring about your world. of many, we believe in the heat, days flow by to our times of trials, minds in motion with the beat. 